Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I think the Liberal Party has a genuine problem in, in sort of inner metropolitan Australia. The Liberal Party is in danger of becoming a regional-based party. Reasons for that, I think, have been articulated by a number of Liberals, that, that the party needs to get back in touch with its original sort of philosophical underpinnings rather than being dazzled by transient culture war. Hello, lovely people of pods. You're listening to Australian Politics. I'm Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor. Today's our last show, our last poll position show, I should say. Now, these are the episodes where we analyse the latest Guardian essential data. So this will be the last conversation about that for the year. And as usual, I'm speaking to Peter Lewis, who runs Essential Media. On this episode, on this show, Peter and I chewed the fat about, uh, well, the end of year hectic parliamentary program and all the various legislation wending its way through the Senate. Uh, We had a chat about the approval ratings of the two leaders, Anthony Albanese and Peter Dutton, and where that leaves the political contest at the end of the year. Uh, We discussed also, because it's a big talking point at the moment, a public distrust of media coverage of politics and political campaigns. There has been a bit of a stink about that in the Victorian election and there certainly was in the federal election as well. And we also had a chat about sort of flowing from that Victorian election where that leaves the Liberal Party uh, that lost that contest and also the National Party. We also had a yak about the National Party's decision this week to come out and oppose uh, the voice to Parliament proposition. Uh, Also, just a reminder uh, that uh, it's always best to look along with the slides uh, that are on the Essential Media website. These are the slides about the latest polling data. Just sort of uh, helps you to anchor yourself in the conversation once we start raving on about this and that other thing. This conversation was recorded on Tuesday and, as always, it was moderated by Ebony Bennett, who is Deputy Director of the Australia Institute and Ebb kicks off our conversation. Catherine, if I can start with you, we're kind of winding down. It's been an enormous year, including uh, a federal election, but we're just not quite finished yet. Parliament's still going. So what's happening up there at the moment? Oh, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's H for for hectic, uh, obviously, (laughs) in the final sitting week of the year. Um, The issues at the moment are The Voice. uh, Obviously, the National Party expressed 
a view about that yesterday, uh, that they would uh, oppose the concept, uh, and it's fair to say that all hell has broken loose on that this morning. The Liberals seem to still be uh, kind of stalling, and I I say that actually in a complimentary way. Uh, The Libs haven't been herded into a position yet uh, on The Voice, although I note that John Howard a couple of weekends ago in The Australian gave Peter Dutton some free advice about how the Libs should oppose the concept and not give anyone a conscience vote. But anyway, that's all sort of working its way through the system. The big legislative things, uh, there's a there's a deal on IR reform, uh, and so we expect that that package will pass. By the end of the week, we also expect the National Integrity Commission to pass. The debate has started on that again in the Senate as we speak. And uh, there was a flurry last night where it looked like the Greens and the Liberals would impose an amendment into the proposal that was unacceptable to the government that involved the um, the Parliamentary Oversights Committee's input into the appointment of NAC commissioners. Uh, the Greens have stepped back off that this morning. Uh, the Greens are now supporting an amendment from David Pocock uh, which, you know, to sort of simplify this, the, the Liberal amendment would have required the appointment to be carried by a two-thirds majority of that committee, the Pocock amendment by a simple majority. Now, I think of all of the amendments in the Senate, the Pocock amendment may get up if the Liberal Party supports it, uh, and then it'll be a judgment for the government about whether or not that is acceptable when the bill goes back down to the parliament. If we sort of take the Attorney-General's temperature, uh, it sounds like the, the government's not intending to countenance more amendments to that. So it's even if it's amended in the, in the Senate, that amendment may be stripped when the bill goes back down to the House. Anyway, but that's all still to play out. The other big one is energy, which has been a big issue for much of the year and certainly since the budget. Uh, The government is working through a regulatory response to try and bring some power price relief to both industrial users and households. Cabinet had a conversation about that yesterday morning. My intel from that is that the government's pretty confident that it can uh, launch a price intervention uh, for gas and and make an make a difference. Uh, the government is less confident that it can impose a wholesale price cap for coal, which is significant if you live in the east coast of Australia. I know people join us on the show from all around the country, but if you live on the east coast of Australia, most power generation on the east coast is still coal generation. So. They may need some cooperation from two states on that, Queensland and New South Wales. The Prime Minister made it clear yesterday that he will be trying to persuade premiers in in around the country to sort of get on board with the energy regulatory package. So we expect to see that, I think, probably sort of in the second week of December in terms of when the rubber will hit the road on that. So, yeah, it's it's hectic as all get out, as final weeks always are, and uh, it'll be hectic until the senators and people from the reps stagger home on Saturday, I think, which is their current plan, late Saturday. Yeah, Pete, it is that kind of time of year where just everything's happening all at once in an effort to clear the decks before Christmas. Um, But how are things looking in polling terms in Guardian Essential Poll? Well, we've been getting our house in order for the end of the year as well, and we've conducted our review into the federal election, and we've also put out our primary and 2PP plus for the first time since the election. So 
the top line there was essentials, final call. If we recognising that that's taking the don't knows out as it got closer, we weren't far off. One point, which is you know a fair um, a fair shake in terms of predicting the two PP result. Um, I don't think you could say the poll failed. If you go to the next slide. We, we overcalled both of the major parties. So our final um, primary Labor was 37, um, the AEC it was 33, Coalition 39, 36. We underestimated some of the, the smaller parties. We've been reflecting on whether that was just, you know, a, you know, a statistical blip or something more fundamental um, as we do after every election. What we're doing, one of our anchor points in terms of our sampling without getting too geeky has always been to have the party ID. So we ask people, regardless of who are you going to vote, which party do you feel closer to? And this was a really useful tool when it was really a two-party contest because we could pick up if somebody said they were normally a Liberal voter and they were looking elsewhere or normally a Labor voter and looking elsewhere. It was a good way of anchoring our vote. Now, what I think has happened over the last couple of terms as more and more people go away from major parties is that party ID is becoming more fluid. Um, you know, it used to be that your party ID was like your footy team. You were born to it and you kept it and you might vote different ways, but it was an anchor point to make sure our sample was on on solid ground. So um, what Gavin and the team and John have done over the last little period is to recalibrate how we do some of those anchors. And so we're going to shift away from party ID and move more to stated previous voting intentions. So that's kind of a bit like how the engine's going to work under, under the bonnet. But we've, you know, done what all people that are involved in the political process should do, which is to review, reflect and revise our methodology after the election. And, you know, the other thing, if, if people have been with us on the journey, 2019, we made the call that we would start keeping the don't knows in our sample as a bit of a, A, as a bit of a reaction to the horse race that just gave the false impression one side of politics was ahead or the other or was it more than 50%. Although on these numbers, even with the don't knows, labour is more than 50%. Um, but the second was to, to really discipline ourselves, not to sort of look at it in terms of a horse race. And so while this is interesting, we don't think it's the most interesting things we're polling. But that said, um, how does labour end the year on um, 2PP plus with the don't knows in at 51 to 43 with 6%? undecided, quite low undecideds there as well, which is interesting. Mm. Um, it was being polled in a week where there was a state election. I don't know if I can attribute too much to that. Um, the Greens finishing the year in a strong position up from the, the federal election on 13, Labor 33, but with those 6% undecided still in the mix. Coalition, not quite as bad as Victoria, but not very far above 30 and that growing base of other independents, which is obviously a movement that has probably not fired quite as well in the Victorian election as it did in the federal, but there are definitely people moving away from the major parties. You know, if you just do, if you just do the sums back on that um, trend line, it's basically a third, a third, a third now, um, the two major parties and other parties. So that's the recalibration in Australian politics that we've been, I think, um, living through over the last couple of terms. And I believe Catherine might have a thing or two more to say about in her upcoming quarterly essay, which um, I'm looking forward to reading over the weekend.
Yeah, Pete, um, and we might come back to the Victorian election as well, but do we want to just go through these? Uh, yeah, we'll go through a few more. Yeah, so this is, again, right, we, we've changed the way that we rate, we, 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 we monitor um, the performance of our leader and opposition leader. Like we've traditionally said approval in performance which I guess for a prime minister and opposition is not an actual fair race. And likewise to preferred PM, we don't think is that useful either because one's the PM, the other's not. So what we've started doing is asking people to rate on a scale of one to 10 positive, negative about how they feel about them. So it takes it in, in a way we're trying to see how the two leaders are portraying themselves to the public but sort of untethering them from the office because it creates a false anchor point as well. And as you can see, Albo's in the positive, 46 think, you know, he's either a 7 to a 10, whatever that means to individuals is up to them, obviously, um, 26% in the neutral band, 4 to 6, um, 23% in the negatives, um, which is pretty low for um a leader when you think that there is one side of politics that's job is to sort of make people feel negative about you. Um, Peter Dutton, not going quite so well, 33% negative, 32% neutral, 28% positive with 8% unsure and never heard of it. So what does that say? I think Labor would be happy with where they are. Um, they've got a leader who's in net positive, significantly positive territory, and they've got... Um, you know, if there was an election held, which there isn't going to be for a couple of years, they'd be in a good slot. Yeah, so that's kind of reasonably steady but starting to decline. Is that just kind of the end of the, not that they've had a honeymoon period, but the further we get away from the election and more into the nitty-gritty of governing, you reckon, well, Pete? I think this direction of Australia, for those that are listening on the pod, so we've been asking this every month, this is not about the government, this is about the country. And straight after the change of government, right direction 48, wrong direction 27. That is narrowed to 44 right, 36 wrong. I would read that more about the external economic circumstances, the high, um, you know, prices, electricity prices, rather than necessarily that that question does not link to the performance of the government, but it does talk about the overriding, you know, circumstances before the election we're in net negative wrong track over right track. So, you know, you don't want to be governing when people think you're heading in the wrong direction, but also you can't control all those levers. Although I think over the last few weeks, Albo has been doing a bit to try to, to shift some of them. About this next question on attitudes to the way Australian media covers politics. Yeah, so I did want to ask this in the context of our review of polling. One of my bugbears, as some of the listeners would be aware of, is that I've been calling on the press gallery to review their own performance in the last election. So I just thought we would do a bit of a situation analysis there. What we've got is 62% of people saying the media treats politics like a game. 55% um, believe it is biased to one side, although um, I would note that people of all voting persuasions think the media is biased, probably against them because you do read what you um, you want to see. And then lower than you'd want numbers in terms of whether um, people feel well-informed about federal politics and whether people believe the media covers well the, the, the issues that matter to them. Um, on the media stuff, I do think that 
it's hard, isn't it? We've I'm interested in Catherine's thoughts on this because we have spoken about it in the past. Like I reckon both the Victorian election this week and the last federal election provided false, I could say false narratives, but they did not provide, I do not believe, a a fair appraisal of what the contest was. And that was because of the way that the media has come to cover elections as kind of almost a tabloid-generated day-by-day little fight club with a set piece where the leader puts themselves in front of a bunch of cameras and journos who want to make a name for themselves, present company accepted. And I just wonder if the same way that we recognised after 2019 that polling wasn't doing the job that it should do, where is the conversation about the way, the role the media should play in elections? And I know we can talk about accountability and sure, but real accountability is not about whether or not Dan's become a dictator um, or whether he slipped down the stairs. It's not about whether Albo can remember figures off the top of his head. And I just think that I'm not sort of throwing all the media in the one basket or anything, but I am asking the question, where is the self-reflection or is it just that the caravan moves on and the gallery keeps covering what comes next without taking any responsibility for its um, performance? So, Catherine. I think, look, in general terms, um, I think uh, the, you know, the media is much better at requiring others to be accountable than to be accountable ourselves. I think just as a general proposition, uh, we're very focused on our accountability role in the democracy, but if someone requires us to be accountable, that that often triggers a hostile uh, pushback from uh, from us. Now, one of the reasons is because uh, journalists sort of temperamentally and professionally are very focused on the importance of free speech, free opinion, free discourse, and these are really important principles to uphold. So that's why some journalists get very toey about what they would regard as excessive regulation because there's sort of a difference between regulation and and having a you know state controlled media right so that's sort of just context right for why these things can get a bit prickly but no i mean i i i said at the time during the federal election it gets a run in the quarterly essay which is now in the public domain uh, that I think uh, there was a dynamic in the federal campaign that was more like pub trivia than a, than about a, a sober, sensible accountability process, and uh, and obviously readers and viewers noticed it, and a number of them were unhappy about it. So what I'm saying is, you know, I th- I think as a general rule, we we can be hostile when asked to be accountable. As a general rule. Uh, we're covering election campaigns less well than we did in the past. Um, But the reasons uh, for both of those propositions are complicated. Um, Look, I I didn't see much of the Victorian election coverage because I was out of the country for the critical bit, I think, in the campaign. I was following Anthony Albanese around Southeast Asia. So I didn't see a lot of it. Um, a, a colleague and a friend of mine, Matthew Rickardson, who is a professor of journalism at Deakin University, wrote quite a good comment piece about this, which was published on The Guardian yesterday, if folks want to chase that up. I think it was a really nuanced bit of commentary, actually, about uh, why sort of performative accountability 
actually creates the conditions for real accountability to be applied less well. And I think that's that's actually a very acute observation. The sort of more show and tell we do, what the more sort of kind of stylized combat we do, uh, tends to promote heat rather than light. And I think what what media consumers need is is light rather than heat. But there's a whole bunch of incentives that push us in another direction. Anyway, that's the short version of a very... No, and that's a great way to think about it too, like light shining a light on what's happening, not heat as in just the conflict and the, yeah, that's a great way of of putting it. Um, Before we kind of uh, come back to the end of year and federal politics, I did just want to take a little bit more time on the Victorian election and just ask you both, I guess, the big lessons out of that because that's two elections now where, the coalition, I mean, obviously Labor won government in both of those, but to me the big story was kind of the the tanking of the coalition and how big of a problem that is going forward. As you said, Catherine, you know, that's probably the more interesting one for people as 2019 was for Labor. Um, if I can start with you, Catherine, did, what did you take out of that election result? Uh, in Victoria, yeah. Well, look, uh, as you say, Eb, there's been two very bad election results for the Liberal Party. Uh, the National Party survived both contests in Nick than their Liberal partners. Uh, I think the Liberal Party has a genuine problem in, in sort of inner metropolitan Australia. The Liberal Party is in danger of becoming a regional-based party and the reasons for that I think have been articulated by a number of Liberals, that, that the party needs to... Uh, you know, get back in touch with its original sort of philosophical underpinnings rather than being dazzled by transient culture war. Um, so that's that's a real thing. I do think there was one interesting inflection point between the two contests, if I can just hang a tiny lantern over that. Obviously, the Teal candidates did not do as well in Victoria as they did federally, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. There, there are spending caps in Victoria, for example, um, that don't exist federally. There's been some debate about uh, candidates, respective candidates in the in the contest, which I'm not fully across because I don't really know the Victorian people. So there's there's those things, but also um, uh, while the Liberal Party performed very poorly in the Victorian election, the Liberal Party did, or on current indications, hold um, some key territory uh, in terms of just the teal battlegrounds if I can express it in those terms. Uh, Certainly there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, an imminent comeback for Josh Frydenberg (laughs) based on the Victorian election result because if you sort of look at the the state seats that sit in his electorate of Kuyong, the heartland Liberal seats or the Liberal areas in that electorate actually held for the Liberal Party in Victoria, whereas obviously that didn't happen federally. Now, I'm speculating because obviously I'm, I'm not close enough to the Victorian contest to understand the dynamics in detail, but I just note for this audience, which is very, very interested in these things, that the state Liberal Party in Victoria has a much better climate policy than uh, than the federal Liberal Party took to the, the last election. And certainly since the change of leader to Peter Dutton, who has actually regressed their position from Scott Morrison's position on climate. So I wonder to what extent the Liberal and National Parties, and both of them in Victoria, 
having a better climate policy than their federal counterparts, to what extent that made a difference in some of those contests. But in a general sense, the Liberal Party has a huge task to work out how it's going to position itself. And I guess my fear for them is that the sort of definitional process that they'll need to embark upon in this term of government will be heavily influenced by their current representation and a number of uh, sort of city moderates were wiped out in the federal election, the last federal election. So you just sort of got to think about this if you're, if you're a group of people sitting around thinking, well, what do we do now, right? If, the, if your current sort of representation in the parliament is less diverse than it has been in the past, you will have a less diverse conversation than you otherwise would have had. Yeah, Pete, did you have any lessons from Yeah, look, I'm up here in Sydney on Gadigal land, so I um I, I wasn't close to it. One observation from the cheap seats, though, is that I reckon one of the things that Albanese's done federally has been to take a lot of anger out of politics in general. So a lot of what drove the momentum of the federal election was anger at Scott Morrison and I think a lot of what drove the Teal success was anger at an individual and obviously individuals are always an abstraction. Um, They're an embodiment of a bunch of policies but also the way the individual carries on and I think we can underestimate how much the mood around politics has changed. So I saw what was going on in Victoria and the Libs almost trying to run Dan Andrews as Scott Morrison as the bad leader we need to get out, and the anger wasn't just wasn't in the room. And, like, I, I, my friends in Victoria, even progressive friends, would say, gee, it's got too far with state control. And I think there there is a little bit of a kernel of truth, but it's not an angry centre that could drive a change of government. And if I look at what... Um, the situation is up here in New South Wales where there's a state election in March. Again, I think it'll be a challenge for Labor. While a lot of the, the portents are good for a change of government, the anger's not there. And in a way, that's really good unless you're trying to dislodge a government. Like, I, I quite like the absence of anger in our political discourse at the moment. But if it's not there, the way of winning a campaign against a government that has all the advantages of incumbency um, is much harder. So we'll see how um, the New South Wales Labor Party goes up here, but I do think that was probably the other false flag in this election, that people just saw it as a a natural follow-on of getting rid of Morrison, they get rid of incumbent state governments. I've got a couple of questions from, or a few questions from the audience here, but just to start off with, a couple of them are on the Nationals Party, and one is uh, asking, what do you think is behind the Nationals gains in Victoria? And another one, Catherine, is asking uh, specifically about the Nationals um, announcement that they're going to oppose voice. Mm -hmm. Um, What is the kind of motivation behind this is the nature of the question, I guess. Well, Nats in Victoria I'm not entirely qualified to make a judgment about, uh, so I might just defer on the basis of, of just not having enough information. In terms of the the federal, uh, the, the voice decision, 
Look, I think uh, obviously uh, Jacinta Price, uh, who is a new representative who came in at the federal election, sits in the Nationals Party room. She has uh, some very uh, strong views, negative views about the voice. That that's a factor. Uh, I think in both in the Liberal and National parties, uh, there is a very strong cohort of MPs who will not accept this proposition, whatever the model, doesn't matter if it's symbolic or whether it's substantive. That has been a long settled feature of this debate. It's one of the reasons why this debate about recognition has gone on for more than a decade is because there is a hard group in both the Liberal and National parties who will not countenance constitutional change, whether whether minimalist or maximalist. So that's a sort of resting predisposition. Uh, I think there is some speculation around some of the, in the, the Indigenous leadership that basically this has been a push by the Queensland Nationals or elements of the Queensland Nationals. Uh, I think the base, the National Party base, whipped up by precursor campaigns by some think tanks are, are opposed. And I'm, I'm talking about party members. I'm not talking about regional Australians. I'm talking about the minority of people who are members of political parties. Uh, so I think there is there is a view around the Indigenous leadership that this is sort of bubbled up via Queensland, that Jacinta Price has... Uh, sort of been the the forward offence on say no to the voice in terms of the Nats and uh, for whatever reason uh, the Nats have basically thought it necessary to articulate their position now and obviously at one level it's ridiculous given that we don't really have you know, there's <laughs> we've got we've got the sentences that were that the prime minister proposes to add to the constitution, but the referendum is at a very nascent stage. We're not actually going to be in full tilt referendum territory until the next financial year. Why the Nats have had to come out and uh, and say this with such strength at this point in time uh, suggests to me that there's that, that there is a base pressure issue on the leader. Uh, Noel Pearson, uh, who's obviously a key driver, mover and shaker in The Voice and the Uluru Statement, uh, made some observations about this on Radio National this morning, which I'm sure people on the pod and the webinar will, will be will be interested to go and listen back to if you've not heard that interview. Uh, uh, he was obviously very critical of this decision at this point in time. Uh, and obviously, too, in terms of internal coalition dynamics, which I think are also possibly part of the story here, um, I think we have seen David Littleproud as Nationals leader acting very much as a Nationals leader rather than the sort of uh, sometimes master-servant relationship of the Liberal and National parties in coalition. I think we've seen on a number of occasions since the election, Little Proud taking a Nationals position whether or not that suited Peter Dutton. Yeah, we've seen that in small ways and, and now we're seeing it in a big way. So I suspect that's also part of the story.
Yeah, um, Pete, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, look, I dug out some numbers for one of Catherine's colleagues, Carla Walquist, and I don't want to steal her scoop, but we just looked at some of the regional breakdowns on voice from August the last time we polled. Support for voice at this point in rural areas is 57-43 in favour and in provincial areas 66-34 to 34 in favour. Amongst coalition voters, it's 53-47 in favour. So this is not a call the National Party is making to reflect the will of the people it represents. It is a political calculation that it can create a sense of relevance by being the, the place where the outliers who want to not listen and accept the invitation from First Nations people to um, have a voice enshrined in the constitution will gravitate around. And I reckon what's going on here also is if it's not the Nats, it's going to be Pauline Hanson because she's the first one that's put her hand up. So there's a little bit of brand differentiation between One Nation and the National Party going on here, but it is not a cost-neutral decision. This pushes them to the outskirts, the back blocks of mainstream Australia very, very quickly, and it is a massive call. The other thing that's interesting is if you think about the voice at the moment, there's the vast majority of people who would say there's been a process, First Nations people have come up with a model They've made the invitation. We'll say, yes, thank you for engaging. We would love a way that we can make better policy. And there's two there, There's two sides to the argument. One is that it's not going to do anything, which is kind of more a progressive argument that it's just performative. And the other one, which says that it's setting up a special case for one race. The Nationals are arguing both cases at once. Like <laughs> it's not even that they've got a coherent reason to vote. No, they've just decided that we're going to be the no people and the no people aren't going to be the outliers of one nation. They're going to be the outliers of the National Party. So massive call. I think the way that the campaign's handling it, more in sadness than in anger, that a major party could be so tone deaf, is it the right way to play it and to open the door for them to re reevaluate? If we get to the position where you know, you've got 70% of regional Australia supporting the voice. Will the, will the National Party really stand in the way? Hmm. I don't know. It's early days, as Catherine said. Well, I think just very quickly, Ed, I just think uh, Pete's point there about One Nation is actually really important uh, because Pauline Hanson has been publicly goading Peter Dutton on this, on this point. And obviously the National Party is has got sort of uh, competition coming from both their right and left flank. We, we see in issues like this, we've seen it in climate change where the National Party is not representative of their communities. And as, as I said before, this is a base issue. This is not an issue of who the National Party is representing. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it'll be interesting to see how they they'd sort of try and thread that needle. But I, I do think Hanson's a significant factor as, as well, yeah. Um, Catherine, want to ask you, for the last poll position, you were away with the Prime Minister travelling overseas. Um, we know that he had a side meeting with the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, but what else emerged from, from that trip? Oh, it was such a fascinating trip. Uh, I thought it would be good. I thought it would be interesting just because of the sort of the, the, the number of issues, it, both regionally, globally and domestically, that would sort of intersect. Uh, it, during that summit season, but it was actually more sort of interesting and revelatory than I expected. 
uh, I think obviously the the sort of stabilisation of the China relationship was Australia's objective going in uh, and the Prime Minister achieved the first steps in that, although one meeting doesn't solve all the irritants and problems in the relationship. And also, you know, the uh, sort of the fascinating thing really was China's uh, decision during the summit season to sort of to to re-engage at some level with the world, mostly positively in terms of the Biden meetings and certainly the meeting with our own Prime Minister, uh, and negatively in the case of Justin Trudeau. I'm sure a lot of people will have seen that video that emerged of the confrontation they had on the sidelines. Beyond China, I just think, uh, you know, lots of... The, my critical kind of takeaway from it was actually optimistic. Now, Pete and Eb and I have known one another all for a long time. I think Eb and Pete are well aware that I am a natural pessimist. However, the best thing for me from my vantage point during summit season was watching the world trying to work. And we did see that across a number of levels in those different summits. We saw ASEAN countries uh, you know, try and uh, try and place some pressure on a military junta in Myanmar. Like we did see that in in an Asia in an ASEAN context, we saw, you know, a certain amount of positioning for rules and norms. We saw the world at large rallying for Ukraine uh, and their continuing difficulties repelling an illegal invasion. Uh, we there was a, a truly hairy moment at the G20 where uh, there was a, a missile misadventure that. You know, in Poland that killed a couple of civilians uh, where Joe Biden literally convened a scratch meeting of the G7 on the sidelines of the G20 and for a couple of hours we we really didn't know whether we were in an Article 5 NATO scenario where that conflict was going to escalate into a full-blown confrontation. Uh, extraordinary few hours to witness at close range. Fortunately, it didn't land that way. Fortunately, more information surfaced that the missile that landed on the Polish farmhouse was actually caused by an interception by a Ukrainian defence system. But that was honestly one of the more extraordinary couple of hours I've witnessed. Uh, And uh, it was amazing to be there. So, yeah, my sort of positive take out of summit season was watching the world trying to work. So in the spirit of the last show and Christmas and everything else, look, there's some positivity from Catherine Murphy. <laughs> there it is. Peace on earth. And yeah, really amazing reflection, Catherine. I can't imagine what it would be like there where you were wondering whether or not things were about to heat up very unfortunately in Ukraine there. But, um, yeah. yeah, so often thinking about those things in times of um, terms of just a talk fest, but something like that would make you realise how much actually is at stake there. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was genuinely amazing. And, and obviously I was filled with the most profound relief, obviously, when uh, we weren't escalating in that direction. Uh, but it was, yeah, it, it's quite something because the, the, it's sort of the whole backdrop to summit season. Of course, they are t- t- trailing talk fests that are populated by a whole lot of interest groups as well as leaders, uh, I can understand why people might be fatigued with the whole demonstration of that, uh, but uh, it was, you know, you, the, the the fascinating thing journalistically, uh, you know, when you when you do summit season is that you are briefly enclosed 
in in <laughs> in spaces uh, with people who literally determine the trajectory of the world that we live in, and uh, and sometimes there are crisis points that enable you to see that statecraft playing out in real time. And, uh, and yeah, it was certainly one of those occasions. Yeah. We're nearly out of time, but Catherine, I did just want to ask you about climate change and energy just to finish us up because we're about to go into uh, our third La Nina summer. We're already experiencing floods again. Uh, the war in Ukraine is causing electricity prices to go up on, on coal and gas which is um, helping with the cost of living crunch. But there's a lot of interactions, I guess, between climate and energy and electricity. Um, how much do you think the government is using this cost of living crisis to help drive forward its climate agenda or are they still kind of still quite separate where the government's coming well, from? No, no, I think you're, you're, you are, as as you always are, Eb, you are acute in making that point. I think... Uh, there is a crossover, obviously, between the uh, the transition agenda that the government has in terms of the transition to low emissions and the cost of living crunch that we're living at at the moment. The danger politically that the government is, is weathering uh, by sort of tying the two narratives together, the story of the transition with the story of cheaper energy options, uh, is because we see Peter Dutton attempting sort of to apply a redux of the Tony Abbott carbon price strategy where you basically you pull climate action out of the the necessary science fact basket and you put it in uh, the bill we can't afford basket where it's just all too hard, it'll cost too much, it's too disruptive and the lights will go off and everybody will, you know, have to mortgage their homes in order to pay their power bills. So I think uh, the Labor Party having been to this rodeo once or twice before is at pains to sort of pull those two stories together in terms of what they're talking about, um, in part because uh, obviously sort of when you get acute cost of living pressure, that is always the most difficult environment to political environment, I mean, to achieve uh, steps forward to deal with a climate crisis. So, look, I think the two are inextricably linked. In terms of looking ahead at, at what's sort of going to happen, um, look, Chris Bowen has had an incredibly busy year legislating a target, uh, legislating the tax cut for EVs. There's a whole big body of work being done on the safeguard mechanism, uh, which I think we'll see a government response uh, between now and Christmas, uh, we'll, and that's that's quite substantive and important. I think the first sort of step in that safeguard transformation we'll see in the parliament this week, I think uh, some legislation will be introduced uh, giving effect to accrediting mechanism, which I won't bore people with, but that's quite an important element of it. I think we'll see that this week. Also this week, we will see the first statement on the climate by, by Chris Bowen. I think, don't hold me to this, I think from memory it's on Thursday, um, that will basically involve two elements. It's obviously Chris Bowen reporting to Parliament on progress but also there'll be some research from the Climate Change Authority about how we're tracking on our climate goals, which is one of the things associated with the targets uh, commitment earlier in the year. So I think all of those things come together on Thursday. Please don't sue me if I'm wrong, because there's a lot in my head at the moment, but I think, I think that's what we expect, that we'll see that on Thursday. So that'll be interesting as well. 
That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to uh, the podcast version of Pole Position. Uh, that uh, Pole Position is hosted by the Australia Institute, the Progressive Think Tank, and there is, I think, a video version of this conversation on their website. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo. Thank you, Daniel. And the executive producer of the show is Molly Glassie. We'll see you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.